This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. The early 2000s in the UK saw a revival of burlesque, a traditional performance form that proliferated a hundred years ago. This revival took place in cabaret stages, in fetish clubs, and in experimental performance spaces, and eventually reached the mainstream. Many female performers have fought to make neo-burlesque a site of expression of the sexual identities, subverting the idea that their work or their bodies were bad or dirty. Some confronted stigma, and the resistance of audiences. A new book, Bad Girls, Dirty Bodies, Sex, Performance and Safe Femininity by Gemma Kamein, explores the social, sexual and political significance of women who are labelled as bad or dirty, through in-depth case studies with artists such as Empress Star, Robert Dole or Doris Latrine, the book challenges the notion that sexual, slatty, bad or dirty women are not worth listening to. Gemma Kamein is a senior lecturer in media and communication at Birmingham City University, and I'm very happy that she joins me now to discuss her research. Welcome to the show, Gemma. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Gemma, your book asks some pretty fundamental questions about what forms of femininity are allowed and valorized by which environments. But we before we get into any of this detail, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your research interest and how you came to work in this field. Yeah, well, I've 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 always been fascinated um, with identities, bodies, lifestyles that kind of deviated from from the norm. And in many ways, I can answer this question in so many different kind of connected ways, and I'll, I'll go through those now. Growing up in a very conservative setting, a very kind of Catholic, uh, heterosexual cis setting, 
Um, I was always fascinated with things that the church would disapprove of or my family would disapprove of. Um, And that fascination developed through my teens when I started to socialise with more people who I felt were more like me. So queers, kinky folk, trans folk, etc. And, you know, these individuals, these groups that I felt that I could belong and be myself in, I felt that an experience that those outside would think very negatively about um, people's identities, lifestyles that deviated from the norm. And and for me, it was a fascination to kind of explore, you know, why why is that the case? Why why is it that um, society in general have very kind of binary views around gender why do they have very binary views around what a person can do with their body so again that kind of drive was first of all from a personal experience but also from a professional point of view as well I I kind of started to engage with through my degrees uh, exploring um, kind of identity politics exploring subcultures particularly fetish BDSM kinky cultures uh, and and how these spaces opened up opportunities for folk to explore self-identity etc but at the same time looking at how wider society disapproved of these particular perspectives and also at a subcultural level how they're certain policing going on around people's um, performance of femininity so there's different routes um, that I've taken to kind of come to this stage in terms of looking at alternative forms of femininity again from my own kind of standing point as a queer woman but also how my friends were were treated uh, in relation to their femininity and um, uh, kind of sexual um, sexuality too. Um, also there has been and uh, I noticed a rise in popularity in kind of burlesque the, in, in the like late 90s early um, 2000s particularly in fetish and BDSM clubs and I was really interested in what this rise meant in terms of um, femininity, sexual expression, also ways to challenge um, norms around the body, what women can succeed at, and yeah, all, all kind of um, kind of contexts relating to identity, I guess. Fascinating. Well, as a fellow Catholic at origin, I, I sympathise with <laughs> some of those some of those interests for sure. But you mentioned burlesque, and just before we get into the the crux of the book, it would be Good to give a listener some kind of an understanding of what it is that we mean by burlesque and some of its histories. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, for listeners who want to look at a more in-depth historical um, kind of story of burlesque, Michelle Baldwin has written quite extensively on this um, subject matter and, and others as well. Uh, but I'll give you a, a, a quick a quick tour of um, uh, burlesque history. So burlesque itself has its origins in the UK in terms of cabaret, vaudeville, um, you know, kind of uh, that kind of slapstick comedy as well. Um, so in the 1800s, you had like the rise of, um, you know, kind of um, bur- burlesque. You had 
in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, Lydia Thompson and the British Bronze, who went from the UK to America um, to perform um, to perform on stage their burlesque. So it's a, a strip tease with an emphasis on tease. Earlier forms of burlesque, you know, you wouldn't have the types of burlesque that you see today. So, you know, the nipple tassels on show because it would be seen as too obscene. But it was, you know, still quite a racy, um, a, a, a racy kind of uh, type of performance art um during the early um 1900s to about uh, the 19 30s um, you had a massive explosion in popularity of burlesque and this kind of comes also at the same time in the growth of the entertainment industry a little bit more exposable income you know this you know there are other external factors that um, enabled kind of burlesque as an art form to flourish on on stages in theatres and there's a few folk who argue that, you know, during the 1950s in particular, that it's the kind of heyday of burlesque where you had pinups, where you had you know, really massive superstars, including um, Betty, Betty Page, one of the world's um, most wonderful um, pinups and also fetish and BDSM models as well. However, um, during the 1950s with the burlesque, with the emphasis on tees, you know, fan dances, beautiful teasing off clothes. It's very tasteful, very tasteful um, um, strip, strip tees. And I'm not trying to get into binaries here because every form of tees for me is, is of, of equal value. But perhaps we'll get into conversations later about the hierarchies around what tees matters to some folk and what tees is seen to be less, less of an art form. However, coming back to the history of burlesque, during the 1950s um, in America, there is starting to be a bit of decline in the popularity of burlesque. And you had moralists from the church and also, um, you know, from from the government and councils who were just not that happy with the vice that is perpetuated apparently by by burlesque and these really risque women doing really moral uh, morally corrosive things. They're corrupting, you know, they're, they're corrupting <laughs> people. These these burlesques, but also during this period, you've got the rise of go go dancing in the nineteen sixties and. 50s. 50s and 60s, the growth of go-go dancing, the growth of gentlemen's clubs, also the growth of kind of pornography, porn mags, etc. So burlesque itself was seen to be a bit of a vice, but also there is a growing demand, a growing kind of um, culture of entertainment focusing on porn, other forms of striptease, and burlesque kind of became quite boring and quite sidelined to this other style of um kind of stripping and um you know erotics and you've got obviously kind of the sex wars of the 60s onwards where you know there's massive battles around um you know kind of misogyny the female body issues around gentlemen's clubs and pornography etc so burlesque itself kind of falls out of the way to this more pressing kind of critique of um kind of porn culture uh, uh, and sexualization in, in, in other kind of contexts. 
However, interestingly, during the 1990s, there is this kind of um, revival of, of, of burlesque. And in the 1990s, it's quite a interesting period. And again, not seeing burlesque or the revival of it in isolation from wider popular culture, from, you know, the, the rise of girl power with the Spice Girls, women being framed as sexual consumers. You know, you've got Anne Summers, you've got, um, you know, um, dildos and vibrators available um, on the high street. You know, you've got you've got more more kind of focus on female empowerment. So this kind of shift to girl power, independent femininity, um, and there's this rise, an interesting rise of um, burlesque um, within kind of uh, in the '90s into the 2000s around um, you know fetish clubs, but also kind of independent. Um, burlesque nights where a space is created for women who whose bodies perhaps um aren't necessarily always promoted in mainstream media so you've got women with tattoos heavily tattooed women women who are fat women of all body shapes and sizes um feeling that burlesque and the rise of it is a space for empowerment a space where they can do a tease whether that could be kind of classic cheesecake stuff or it could be um fire eating uh, and other forms of um kind of grotesque burlesque as well there's different forms Forms of of burlesque influenced by body modification, circus, freak show, and that kind of stuff. So there's this kind of space for more women to kind of perform in a safe space. So you get a few uh, burlesques saying this isn't a gentleman's club. This you know burlesque is for everyone. It's you know we're not there for someone to get get kicks out of you know we're not there for someone to get you know sexually excited over <laughs> over what they see on um, stage because we're you know it's kind of a, um, it's still a tasteful tease but again an emphasis on, on on tease um so yeah there's been a really interesting kind of uh, ways in which the, the new forms of burlesque came and emerged in the 1990s onwards quite subversive quite alternative however to my research i found that these issues there are issues at the subcultural level as well as the kind of mainstreaming of burlesque from the 2000s onwards that has massive implications on possibilities around femininity thank you for this fantastic potted history of of burlesque and, and erotic performance which to me is fascinating having observed bits of it in yeah. the early 2000s yeah. in, in east london hanging out with actually some of the people who who were the performers that, that you you write about the the revival as you say it's something that that was kind of so integrated into into mainstream popular culture yeah. that a lot of the conversation that you develop in the book was very difficult to grasp mm. from from there and then mm. but before we we get into the case studies and bearing in mind that your work is mostly ethnographical i think it would be great to spend a moment thinking about the title and some of the classifications and definitions yeah. that you set up so your your book i have to say the title in i mean i've wrote down the title in my notes wrong a number of times so the title to the title to confirm is bad girls dirty bodies i had written down good girls like automatically so many times and of course this is this is the the play that you introduced yeah. with all of this but it goes way beyond and and issues of dirt actually are far from from trivial so it would be great to to hear hear your take on 
how you see those terminologies playing out and maybe to, to go into some of the details of what it is that, that female sexuality in performance does in relation to those terms. I love the fact that you replaced it with good girls. <laughs> Because it's it's interesting though, because again, you know, good girls are usually come come um, come first, and what bad girls, dirty bodies does is bring bad girls to the forefront, saying, you know, the, the these bad, dangerous, dirty, slutty, kinky women are actually sites of power, possibility, and and success. Uh, and again, the, these words, the bad and the dirty, have texture. They have taste. They they have bodily effects as well. So when we think of dirt, you know, you're revolted by something, or someone might be turned on by the dirty. So the, the dirt, dirty and the bad have different different kind of meanings. But it has texture, you know, and um, and also, you know, when we're thinking about dirtiness, one can revel in dirtiness. One could be pigeonholed as being bad, dirty, society, you know, socially corrosive, but actually you like it that way because you are um, upending or challenging wider norms around, you know, what you're supposed to do with your body. Um, so the bad and the dirty are alluring, but also there is terms to censor sexual women too. Uh, and they're sticky categories as well. So the bad the dirty are also used as terms to shut people down. I think it's a really important thing for us to kind of highlight here. So it's women who take up space as well, who are put, you know, thinking about who's bad and who's dirty and, you know, to try and censor them. You know, folk might put these bad women or women who might not be heterosexual, they might be kinky, they might even just take up too much room in society or they might shout back at people catcalling them. Any kind of taking up a space, sluts, sex workers, bisexuals, kinky folk, the trans community, all of these contexts can be seen as, as, as you know, kind of bad forms of femininity or dirtiness because these elements might um, contravene particular norms around gender, around what one can do with their with you with your body. So again, the bad and the dirty can be taken up in and explored in different contexts. The book itself looks at kinky women, kinky cis, queer queer women. Um, so again, it you know the, the bad and the dirty and the dangerous can be explored in different forms. And again, the terms, these terms, the bad and the dirty, um, are applied to a range of contexts and individuals. So again, for the context of this book, the vehicle into debates around bad women and dirty bodies is is burlesque. And it's mainly the, the main case studies kind of focus on um, women who defy the commercial clean image of burlesque through applying filth, porn, same-sex desire and and kink. Um, and again, although those labelled as bad, dirty, too much, too old to do that, too sexual, too kinky, might be um, kind of shouted down by dominant culture and um, value systems, the women in this book upend and challenge um, these kind of a, a negative perception so when we're looking at the kind of history of what is bad and what is dirty it comes back to kind of social context the church the idea of the family binaries you know man and woman 
heterosexual marriage that sex can only be something that is valid uh, when you're making children um so again kind of these ideas around what is distasteful and what is bad and corrosive and polluting um kind of social norms has a history so if we look back at kind of the kind of the victorian period you had this obsession with cleaning up the streets you know putting in these sewage systems but also is about cleaning up morality and there was this kind of crystallization around genders um within the um 1800s and you've got this idea of you know the church and the family are sacred anything that disrupts that needs to be incarcerated you need you know someone who defies that is someone that needs to be fixed so this idea of if you're gay you've got to be fixed, you know, there's something mentally wrong with you. Obviously, I don't believe that. But, you know, uh, these kind of ideas that there's a perfect goodness, and it's around godliness, it's around the family, it's about heterosexuality. But also, you've got this kind of standardisation of, okay, this is the measurement of the good. If you are at the opposite end, you know, we need to make sure that you become good because there's something wrong with you. So this idea of the good and the bad has a history also in psychiatry within the growth of the hospital. All of these institutions that still have an impact today. If you look at kind of burlesque and the commercialization of burlesque or, or, or also kind of kink as well, there are mediated tasteful forms that are okay. But if you go down the street, you know, in a gimp suit uh, with, you know, with, um, you know, uh, nipple clamps, you know, you, you're probably seen to be someone who is not necessarily um, good. You might be seen as quite dirty, quite subversive. And again, you know, it, it's based back on these kind of assumptions and these categories, these socially constructed categories that um, have a history and still have an impact um, today. I'm not too sure if the uh, GIMP, GIMP example yeah, is I was, the Yeah, I was always thinking. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I live in East London where, where this kind of site wouldn't really be all that all that out of place. But I think this 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 takes us into a, a really interesting area, which, which maybe will come out if we get into some of the case studies. Yeah. And that's the question of the category of dirt that you evoke so powerfully being productive mm-hmm. in a certain type of resistance and creation of alternativities. In the context of my, my own lived experience, sexual categories mm-hmm. never appeared to me to be as contested to the extent that you just described. Maybe it's a matter of you know, where and how I grew up. Yeah. So I wonder maybe we could we could use this as an opportunity to get into some of the extremes, because we set the scene with the revival of burlesque, which is all very nice and clean. And now we've jumped into dirt, which you placed in a very rich historical context. But I think it would be great to give our listeners some idea of what it is that we mean by some of the dirty behaviours. The first the first case, big case study in the book of the performer called Miss T, I thought was a really rich illustration of some of the things that we might want to pay attention to to see that the mainstream is actually not accommodating of this kind of gimp suit behavior that you just alluded to yeah miss i mean miss t with her lived experience a really interesting case study i mean she grew up feeling as if she wasn't uh, feeling as if she she couldn't belong anywhere and actually the fetish community the bdsm community was a space for her to be herself without having to justify who she was with, 
what she did with her body, what she wore, where she felt that externally in some kind of um, gay and lesbian clubs that she would be policed, that because she's very femme, very pin-up, that um, that image would undermine her sexuality and people would question, are you a, are you a straight tourist? Are you, you know, sitting on the fence? Are you actually bisexual? So for her kind of um, fetish and BDSM clubs was a space where she could just be. And within these spaces, she had the opportunity to explore explore her performance art so she did a lot of kind of burlesque performances that invited women in the audience to fancy her and it's you know in 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 kind of mainstream burlesque although the fourth wall is broken with miss t that you know she would invite the audience to interact with her she would invite the audience to desire her because she desired you so this kind of breaking of the fourth wall was quite quite subversive and again with her performances she would um in, interlink kind of um fetish and bdsm acts within the um striptease itself and i've got to be really careful how i describe um uh, the performances because um miss t um has been anonymized but again kind of fetish bdsm and other forms of uh, of striptease and lap dancing um, were used within her performance, which you wouldn't generally see um, mainstream forms of of burlesque, because again, there is that slight distance between the audience and the performer. Um, also, there is less explicitness. So within Miss T's performances, there was an explicitness of kind of orgasms. You know, this uh, explicitness in terms of. Uh, again, fetish and, and BDSM. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Sax.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Maybe it would be good to place this in a little bit of a context terms like BDSM and fetish intermingle with burlesque quite quite freely. And, and I think it's important to place this particular case study and others in a context of the kind of audiences which which they reach. So my reading of, of your case study of Miss T is that she's a reasonably young performer and someone who chose to go into the BDSM and fetish scene quite early on in her life with a particular interest in that building up a certain identity for her and allowing her a certain set of freedoms. Mm-hmm. So I think it will be important to, to place this within a certain subculture and you know, to not necessarily giving up the names of the clubs yeah. and, and, and club nights, but 
but to understand what kind of a community it is that she's attracted to. Yeah, I mean, the the clubs that she kind of frequented would be spaces where folk can wear particular forms of of clothing. So if you look at kind of latex clothing, inflatables, you know, outfits that perhaps if you went to a mainstream club, there might be some negative confrontations with people dressing in in a way that that, that isn't kind of your uh, jeans and t-shirt. <laughs> More interesting um, types of outfits that are planned, DIY kind of aesthetics. But in these kind of spaces, you'd get individuals who would dress in a variety of ways that would perhaps invite in terms of mainstream culture, negative negative reactions or kind of um, reactions where people are gawping at particular outfits. If someone's in a full gimp suit, you know, kind of head to toe in, in, in latex. In these clubs, you have trans and non-binary folk as well who feel that it's a safe space where they're not judged. They might not identify as kinky, but the clubs that the research was engaged with and you know what miss what miss t kind of explored would be a space for a variety of individuals to go and just feel like they're not being judged so this includes um uh, people who like to um dress up in different forms of latex attire it could be folk from the trans and non-binary community feel safe in the space and not judged uh, you also have in the space um, not only a dance floor but a dungeon and in the dungeon you'd have a range of equipment where safe, sane and consensual play are happening between consenting parties so this could be um, someone could be, be being whipped so there is a range of kind of spatial context within these clubs where you can go um, to pose in your beautiful outfits where you can dance on the dance floor where there are performances on stage like you know um, uh, emperor star for example has um, performed at uh, massive fetish clubs like um, torture gardens where there is a mix of fashion with bdsm and, and, and kinky play as well so there's playrooms in these spaces, a variety of people come to these clubs for a variety of re- reasons, and it, it and it is a form of a safe space for a variety of reasons as well. And in the case of Miss T, it was a space where she could, you know, um, be scantily clad and not be touched. It was a space where she could be queer without other folk questioning um, her intentions or her identity. And it was a space for her to explore um her sexual identity and desires through the type of burlesque that she did and again this type of burlesque kind of combined the traditional kind of fan dances but with fetishy um elements to it so latex uh, like bondage and discipline and you know, all of these themes were interwoven within her performances and she would invite um you know the audience to desire her uh, whereas in other kind of mainstream burlesque spaces, and there's no 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 issue with this, you know, if someone wants to kind of have a classic performance, that that's cool. What what the issue is for me is when folk are kind of demeaning to to women like um, Miss T, who see their burlesque as dirty, when actually it's dirty in very good ways and subversive ways. But you know, unlike traditional revivalist burlesque. 
Miss T invited desire. And although there is a kind of fourth wall in all forms of kind of burlesque performers, or the fourth wall is broken, sorry, kind of sexual desire isn't really invited um, within the mainstream kind of context. Whereas with Miss T, there was this active desire to be desired and it was okay for you as an audience member to desire her so this idea of same-sex attraction and and wanting that person on stage because they want you was something that she tied into her narrative of her performances this is really interesting and i'm i was struck in this particular case study with and to me this is beginning to be a bit of a paradox in forming this kind of safe space but there is to me a tension between wanting to be safe mm. and also wanting to push boundaries at the same time. And I think that's encapsulated to a certain extent by the difference between the bad girl and the dirty girl. Yeah. And it strikes me that maybe the bad girl is a label that one can take on for oneself. You'd certainly say that Miss T feels happy with that kind of label, whereas mm. the label of a dirty body is both pejorative but also liberating at yeah. the same time. Yeah, and and again, you know, when you when we're thinking about kind of these spaces of possibility, you know, these spaces of possibility open out, you know, uh, areas where um, women take up space in ways that they feel that they can. One of the kind of issues is is it. <laughs> Are there only these particular spaces that women can do this and you know feel and, and be and, and be valued? And actually the book looks at ways in which the bad and the dirty need to continue to be um visible in spaces beyond kind of accepted spaces. Um, because again, you know, when we're thinking about upending and challenge challenging norms, if you want to queer them, that queering process mm. needs to happen continually and not just in one or two spaces. I mean, Miss T talks in in the chapter about, you know, how you know some spaces she should feel more comfortable performing in. However, if she was performing in a you know a more mainstream vanilla uh, event, you know, obviously Taylor. Um, some of her performances to um to that venue but she said she would never feel that she'd be shouted down and actually we're talking about this idea of opening up space but also that you know the binaries of kind of um um spaces closing closing identities or voices down it reminds me of in the first chapter where i explore um doris latrine who is a blesser who blesses bulimia and she um in one performance that she did in Birmingham on Valentine's Day um the reactions that she got from the audiences who I think is it quite a mainstream venue I think they were expecting very traditional cheesecake very kind of um safe forms of um burlesque and she was the penultimate act and she pushes on stage her toilet her golden toilet len and she does a strip tease uh, and and within a strip tease she's talking about you know her her life story she's talking about blessing bulimia she's narrating her her identity on stage and instead of the kind of big reveal being at the end you know the nipple tassels and the twirling of them it's her retching into the toilet and around in the audience People were getting up and walking away. Mm. You had dudes behind myself and um, one of um, one of Doris Latrine's friends who was saying, "What the 
what the hell is going on here? That's disgusting. Um, and, you know, she felt this massive resistance towards her story on stage and this idea that, you know, you're not beautiful enough you're too old. This is, you know, this performance is just disgusting. It has to be pretty. We're not here for your life story. We're here for your tits, you know, and, and she talks about this in, in, in the second chapter where I talk about, um, just before we go on to Miss T, uh, about how, you know, she feels that there are only certain spaces that she has, she feels safe to perform at, even though she knows that these kind of events that are mainstream are also events that she needs to put her story out at to take up space. However, those wider norms, and it's not just about the stylistics of classic burlesque or audiences, mainstream audiences wanting to see a particular type of form of burlesque because they want to be entertained. It's about misogyny. It is about, you know, it tells us a lot about sexism. It tells us a lot about folk not wanting to hear women's stories, not to hear their identity. It also kind of explores and highlights, you know, what bodies do, do does society frame as desirable or being desired which feminist voices count and in the you know in terms of burlesque this is supposed to be a space especially in the revival for all voices and all women to to be valued but that's not the case I mean when um Doris Sheen came off stage one of the performers um just absolutely um you know demeaned her and said you know that that what the f was that what what type of performance was that coming from a performer who looks exactly like Dita Von Tees, who's a brilliant performer, but if there's a repetition of ideals around what's beautiful and what's kind of, you know, subversive, empowered, um, burlesque striptease, that, those norms, those discourses start to replicate those wider norms around binaries, around what bodies and desires are acceptable or not. So actually, through the vehicle of burlesque and these interactions from Doris Latrine through to all the case studies it tells us a lot around how women take up space but also the um the context that they're battling against and the ways that they're subverting and navigating these wider discourses that frame kind of you know contemporary femininity in very specific ways and in, in, in very kind of clean ways and women who contravene kind of the mainstream um, cleanliness of of norms around you know um, sexually empowered women and what that means anything beyond that is seen to be dirty and 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 morally corrosive and not worth focusing or valuing mm. um, so the book itself is an, an intervention into that to say actually these mainstream clean mediated forms although they're you know it's great uh, but actually these dirty subversive bodies and femininities are, are, are ways to upend patriarchy, are ways to challenge norms, are ways to see gender as a myriad as a myriad of things. It's queer. That's absolutely fascinating. And I'm glad that you bring up Doris Latrine. Um, I had the pleasure of, of seeing her speak in another event. And I was very happy and very touched to see that she is indeed by the standard of, of of these kind of works, she's she's older. Mm. This is not someone in her twenties and thirties mm. experimenting. Mm. This is this is a person in her early fifties, and I think that for me was testament to the political importance of this work. Mm. And I want to ask you whether you see this as a kind of success case, success story. Um, one of the big case studies in the book is um, of the 
burlesque and trapeze artist Empress Star, who might be known to quite a few of our listeners because she is a you know international phenomenon. I have to say that even I have a personal connection. I could not have guessed this when I was picking <laughs> up the book. Um, Empress Star is a name I knew when I was in my mid-20s, but I was quite shocked to see that in the book Empress Star, a new name check someone I actually used to live with. <laughs> and there is a there is a scene with with balloons that, that is very graphic and I mean anyhow, I I am <laughs> I was there when some one of the most outrageous aspects of Emperor Star's performances were being discussed and and made in the early in the mid two thousands. But anyhow, I'm interested to see how you see Empress Star, who is both someone who created their identity through participation in, in fetish spaces like Torture Garden, yeah. but also found wild commercial success. Yeah. You know, we 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 we're talking both the underground and we're talking the circus. Yeah. We we we're talking a incredible span of yeah. audiences and modes of expression. So it'd be great to hear. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Empress Star is just uh, phenomenal. I know her her work her content her work now is slightly different to um, the work that this book focuses uh, focuses on. Um, but yeah, she's uh, a, f- a phenomenal um, aerial circus artist, cabaret theatre performer, uh, show director and producer. And um, the work itself that the book focuses on is her work in the early um, to mid 2000s. So the Queen of the Night is one of the um, stellar performances that I had the pleasure of watching uh, several times. And actually, you know, Empress Star said in the interviews that, you know, this, you know, this was um, one of her most um, fun performances to do. And she also positions this show as seminal. And, uh, in the show, you've got Empress Star coming on stage in this beautiful black ruff, long cloak, and um, you know she comes on and in a crystal ball and a cackle, a blow up sailor, uh, a blow up doll in a, in a sailor suit is thrown on stage, and her striptease is again it's r- ridiculous, it's ludicrous. It's queer, it, you know. It's brilliant in its um, in the way that it navigates the absurd, and how the use of the absurd for her with her undressing to a strap on to her doing a bit of fire eating and then um, fucking the the blow up doll on stage in very comedic ways. The absurd, the jester. The, the comedy involved in in that highlights the ridiculousness of binaries of um, ideas around uh, dirtiness and what's quite funny about and great about Empress Star's work is that you know it highlights that when we're looking at identity when we're looking at people's moral belief systems they're laughable you know that you know people's perceptions of subversive um, things of what people do behind closed doors, whether it's kind of same sex sex or whether it's kink, mainstream or wider norms can paint a really ridiculous picture of what's happening in 
you know, non-vanilla kind of relationships. And actually, you know, it's pointing the finger back and laughing at those misconceptions and saying, actually, you know, Emperor Star isn't, you know, um, doing an erotic performance with a, with a blow-up doll and the Queen of the Night. What she's doing is quite clever in terms of making that act absurd, <laughs> highlighting its construction, highlighting it as a form of entertainment and, you know, throwing it, throwing that extreme back in the faces of the audiences. And if you're shocked by that, then maybe that's something that you need to work through in terms of your own moral disposition, because what on, what's on stage is entertaining and fun, but it is that what, what's interesting about Empress Star's work, and again, this is a kind of twisted cabaret to the to even her kind of beautiful, um, you know, um, striptease on on the trapeze on her really massive um, chandelier where she, you know, pulls a diamond out of her pussy. All of this is again, you know, um, it's beautiful. It's horny it's in your face it's entertaining it's all of these things and it's not you can't just read Empress Star in 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 one way and if someone does that kind of highlights their own kind of moral standing point that has absolutely nothing to do with the context that Empress Star is is kind of um playing with but her use of the orifices her use of um, shock and again Empress Star says she's not there to shock but she's there to entertain so again this idea if someone is shocked by what she has done in, you know in the Queen of the Night or other performances that's very telling of the kind of wider gender gender norms that structure norms around the body what is art what is burlesque what women can and cannot do with their bodies so Empress Star and the Queen of the Night at that, that seminal performance is again a really interesting vehicle into kind of queering norms and again she talks about the gesture in this chapter she talks about how in her position as an artist she's able to kind of highlight inconsistencies in the world just like the jester in the court used to be where they wouldn't have their head chopped off because and they could poke fun at the king or queen because that was they occupied that space and what's great about empress star she's built up this uh, amazing reputation uh, you know of being you know a phenomenal aerial artist circus performer and uh, um, and and a shocking performer as well with some of her amazing and I love I love all of her cabaret stuff. <laughs> I think she's wonderful. Um, but she's in a position where she can do that. She occupies the space of the jester where she can highlight those inconsistencies. And the difference between her and the first case study, Miss T, is that Miss T does it as a local kind of cultural practice, which is brilliant. But she doesn't make a living out of it, and she can't occupy the space that Empress Star has and has made a career out of you know and in terms of uh, Empress Star taking up space you know it, she takes up space in a different way that Miss T hasn't been able to um, for a variety of, of reasons but yeah Empress Star is wonderful <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan um, I mean I, I was able to see one of her early performances from that period as well you... and I was, was was impressed and which one was that I think it might have been Queen of the Night. But see, this was at a this was at a point where a whole crowd of of people of that whole ilk were designing the work mm. in in a living room that I shared with, <laughs> with these performers. So it it didn't really make such a such an impression on me at the time because you know 
someone someone extracting a balloon out of the anus was just kind of every daily day. occurrence. Every day, just like, like you know, like, like okay, making okay. toast and yeah. yeah. But I think what what actually thinking about this and my maybe quite a blasé attitude to it at the time puts me to think of of another dimension. And maybe crudely, I can explore. We can ask you to explore this through the difference between Misty, who I see as inhabiting a very different politically temporal yes. sphere. Yes. So this is a local community in which individual relationships really matter. There isn't a commercial aspect to what Misty does to to, to that extent, mm-hmm. and there is also an advantage of us now being in 2020. And a very different discursive landscape yeah. around those things than, say, 2005. Yeah. So we're looking at, on the one hand, with someone like Miss T, again, these kind of transgressions and performances as a pol- explicitly political practice that's aimed at the individual involved. Yeah. Whereas Empress Star, possibly, I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak because I never interviewed her <laughs> at, at those times, but. I did not witness the the cabaret scene and the burlesque scene of the mid-2000s as being inevitably political. I mean, Empress Star and you talk about the rise of the experience economy, mm. and there is a blaring of those lines. Mm. You do credit Empress Star with wanting to push boundaries, mm. but there is a subtlety. There's a subtlety in which the political agenda and the the ability to reach wide audiences are being traded off. Mm. And there's not really, I don't imagine there's a way to judge one against the other, mm. but may, may, maybe there's something we can take on from, from just the, the time difference. Like what's happening? What's the evolution? And what do you see as still being productive mm. and worth dwelling on in, in those spaces? Well, I think, you know, um, although there has been kind of, contextual changes in you know 2020 although um you know the me too movement has happened there are you know the same issues that the book highlights are still present today because you know women's bodies are still policed um in terms of fetish and bdsm and other types of kind of performance art relating to these concepts not just about burlesque but um other forms of political um, political acts, political standing points. Women are still being doxxed. They're still being harassed online. You know, um, I, their ide- women's identity. And I don't know, it sounds like I'm, I'm giving, you know, pretty women in all one category. And I mean, it, it's so complex and that it all depends on a myriad of um, intersections. And we're talking about, you know, who has space to take up, who has benefited from the Me Too movement, from women being addressed as sexual consumers, because, you know, it's, it's very particular types of women who've benefited um, um, on the backs of others. But I think, you know, there are still massive issues around how how society values forms of resistance. So, for example, if we're looking at bad girls, dirty bodies in a contemporary context, if you look at the kind of the commercialization of BDSM and fetish and burlesque, it's still mediated. You won't get um, a, a mainstream film that uh, and I'm removing kind of Fifty Shades of Grey because it's an awful film, and it, you know, it, it, it it's, it, you know, and it, it, it's, it's abusive, and it's not BDSM. Um, 
but you won't get a mainstream film um, that would um, look at kind of queer burlesque. You wouldn't get a mainstream film or even a recording artist who would do a bit of BDSM or burlesque and end up with a same-sex partner in the video. I mean, you've got an example like Christina Aguilera, I'm Not Myself Tonight, in that it's a beautiful video, you know, really horny video, really kind of kinky video, and you've got her, you know, dreaming or having a fantasy of having doming a woman, wearing all these kind of kinky latex outfits, having you know, a sex party, having multiple partners. But actually, at the end of the video, it's all a dream. And she's just there in the bedroom with a boring bedroom with her boring boyfriend, you know. And although there are elements of the bad and the dirty and subversiveness, there's a limitation in terms of the mainstreaming, in terms of the commercialization of particular elements from subculture, which is seen to be palatable for you know, kind of commercial ventures, but actually the narratives around gender, what gender is, what femininity or masculinity is, what sexuality is, or what what forms of sexualities or genders are accepted, it's very much still mediated. Um, And again, you know, if we kind of expand to kind of representations of bisexuals in, in films, it's still, and TV shows, bisexuality is still quite a tenuous um um sexual identity and you know that's and that's a massive problem because again bisexuals have been marginalized for years in the media the same with um trans bodies and, and uh, the trans community i mean there's some, been great developments um with independent kind of producers and shows giving a trans voice more space however you know still in the mainstream you've got these kind of tragic stories uh, and no happy ending stories relating to the trans community, lesbians, you know, gay men. And, you know, there's still a limitation to what's visible in the mainstream. So although that some of the contexts have changed since the book, the themes that the case studies engage with, and it's not necessarily about the performances in terms of burlesque, but it's about what they're saying about gender, what they're saying about the body, what they're saying about sexuality, what they're saying about the issues of heteronormativity, you know, those those issues are still prevalent now and that, you know, we need to continue to push and queer and uh, and see the value in disgust as well and see the value of these bad women, these dirty bodies as sites of power, possibility and, and success. Well, that's an impassioned rallying cry. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't mean it as a as a, as a joke at all. No, it's it's, it's a fantastic manifesto, and, and the book does does read like a like a very impassioned manifesto for pursuing the kind of practices that you observe in the book, and and it and it's quite reassuring in the end to see that actually both the more transgressive and the more commercially viable have contributions to make into this kind of discourse. So I want to ask you to to end um, how you've continued this research. And uh, I've, having shared research seminars with you, I've heard some exciting terms. Awesome. Yeah. So um, I'm still kind of focusing on and I'm you know, still invested in exploring the value of dangerous forms of femininity, the bad and the dirty. And over the last couple of years, um, my research focus has still been the same in terms of focusing on uh, marginalised forms of femininity. 
and it's moved into um, exploring the professional dominatrix as as entrepreneurs. Over the past couple of years, I've been engaging with um, pro doms, also writing research bids to try and get some funding to explore in collaboration with pro doms, pro dom voice and entrepreneurship. So what's important about this work is, again, you know, with when we're thinking that you know women are supposed to have more freedoms actually you know uh, pro doms are experiencing a lot of um barriers um around around work uh pro doms aren't seen as entrepreneurs but they are uh, these women are fantastic business women they wear many hats they have a range of uh, professional professional skills and experiences that can upend, can challenge heteropatriarchal culture. So there's something very significant about um, professional domination and framing and what it what it could mean to frame pro doms as entrepreneurs. I have interviewed a couple of um, pro doms of the last um, year or so for um, for a, a paper that explores pro dom voice and entrepreneurship. Um, but the bid is looking at uh, collaborative ways of bringing voices in and working in collaboration with pro doms to challenge those not just challenges challenging negative perceptions of particular types of work but also framing these women as as experts in a variety of of contexts beyond the networks that they engage with socialize etc so um that's where i am at, at the moment in looking at pro doms as as entrepreneurs gosh that's a fascinating field which which has the potential to cross quite a few few different research agendas. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with good luck with that for sure. Thank you. Gemma, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation and indeed for your research. Well, thank you very much for having me. Bad Girls, Dirty Bodies, Sex, Performance and Safe Femininity by Gemma Kamein is published by Bloomsbury. I'm Pierre Lalance and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time. <laughs>